Welcome to Vamps on the Verge. I'm Darcy. And I'm Dee Dee. On this podcast, we pay way too much attention to forgettable films. We're going to overanalyze, overlook genre films, and obsess over their leading women. Dee Dee and I, we are obsessed with movies. We're in general a little obsessive. There may be some ADD, maybe some OCD, maybe a little anxiety disorder in the mix. And that just means we're going to follow any tangent that these movies present to us. We're going to follow those rabbit holes. What kind of movies do we like to watch? We love giallo. We love horror. Exploitation. Anything campy. Art house. B-movie trash. (laughs) Yes. We will find something redeeming to talk about. Today, we're going to be watching Queen of Blood from 1966. Somebody pointed this movie out as having interesting visuals on Instagram, but I knew it looked familiar, and the reason it looks familiar, I'm showing Didi. You guys can all visualize along. This book, called Incredibly Strange Films, has a little summary in it of this movie, Queen of Blood. And this book... When I was around 12 or 13, I went to my cousin's house and his dad, my uncle, had just given him this book and he was all excited about this book and he was talking about it and showing it to me and I asked if I could borrow it. He'd literally just been giving it and I borrowed it and I still have it. And I'm going to say it's been several decades since I was 13 years old and he has never gotten this book back. (laughs) So that's the kind of person that I am. Now you all know. We were talking about this recently that before the internet was a really big thing, and I'm dating myself here, you had to find like the book of weird things if you were the weird kid. And so that is how I found out about all of these old weird movies. It's how I found out about Biddy Page. It's how I found out about Roger Corman, Russ Meyer. Same way I found out about punk music. Stealing CDs from my brother. (laughs) You had to work for it. Yeah. You really had to scrap for your content pre-internet. Once something clicked, it really took over your young brain. And I mean, I'm still like that. If something clicks, boom, goodbye. That's where I am now. Obsessing over something that like, I latch on to. Except I don't recall where I got my book. It could have like, it could have come out of the ether. <laughs> could have like just shown up one day on the floor The universe planted it in front of me. It was a book about uh, like unsolvable mysteries and conspiracy theories. There was a section on spontaneous human combustion that basically took over my brain for a a long time. I love it. I was convinced I was going to spontaneously combust. 100%. Yeah, books on like spontaneous (laughs) human combustion, alien abductions. Yeah. The other day I shared a meme. That was like, whatever happened to the Bermuda Triangle? Not a lot of action around there lately. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing that kind of turned my brain, like clicked it on from like being that a kid who just sort of absorbed whatever to being a teenager who was sort of like beelining into whatever personality I was going to form was stolen glimpses of TV in other places or TV I wasn't supposed to watch. And when I grew up on this farmhouse way out in the like Oregon coast, but like really no one knows where this place is. It's not a real town. Never been seen again. Never been seen again. Bermuda Triangle, but but in Oregon, we didn't have TV except for like, you know, a couple stations that we could pick up on a rabbit ear. 
when I would go visit my cousins in a bigger town, mm-hmm. they had MTV, they had VH1, they had all the channels, which my mom really hated that I was watching. So I started watching really late night, like Comedy Central would have yeah. these repeats of movies. And they had Rocky Horror on one night, and I had never in my life seen anything like this. So I must have been 13 or 14, you know, pretty, pretty sheltered from the world, seeing Tim Curry pop up on the screen. My mom had been breeding the love of horror into me from a very small age. She didn't like me watching anything with sexy stuff in it, but I could watch horror. I could watch anything Stephen King. It was kind of a funny, weird thing. Um, you know, she gave me Carrie to read when I was in the sixth mm-hmm. grade that summer. She was like, you should, you're old enough. You should be reading this. Like, <laughs> it's an important learning. book for any young woman, really. Exactly. Um, Develop a hearty fear of your period, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so that was kind of, those were the things that woke my brain up. And she didn't want me to watch it. She kept turning it off and saying I wasn't old enough. And then finally she brought me to the Clinton Street Theater here in Portland, which if anyone's listening and and isn't familiar with the Clinton Street Theater, it is a really small single screen theater. Just the fact that she brought me to the Clinton Street Theater for a midnight showing of Rocky Horror saying, if you're going to watch it, you have to watch it right. I love that. It's still to me kind of mind boggling to this day, but I'm really glad she did because that started like a cute tradition where she would bring me to different small towns like Kelso, Washington. They were playing it at their theater. Um, She would bring me to really any place she could find it. Your mom is like an ambassador. <laughs> yes. I think that's amazing. She did like exactly what she should have done. She was like, look, we're not going to like let you watch just little bits of this at your cousin's <laughs> house, which I love the cousin connection. <laughs> but yes. she actually went and watched Rocky Horror with you. Did she sit next to you? She did. And in the oh my God, the um, at the beginning, you know, the pre-show, they try to get all the virgins, the people who haven't watched the movie up on the, up on the stage. So they asked for all the virgins to come up and my mom's arm just shot across my chest like, you know, a mom would do if she hit a stop, like a stop sign really fast or had to stop the car and their arm just shoots out. Yeah. And I didn't understand why. And she was like, just wait and watch. There's no way my child's going up there. 14 year old teenage girl. You were going to the Clinton Street Theater, and the Clinton Street Theater, I think, has had the longest running showing of Rocky Horror Picture Show in the country. That was just one of those things that kind of woke my brain up. I love that Rocky Horror like brought you into all of this because I feel like that is an experience that so many people have had. I think you're right. I know that like my first viewing of Rocky Horror was like life changing. I was around the same age. I was 12 and I had like an older friend who I hadn't seen for a minute. And in that minute, she matured seemingly years and I went to her slumber party and she was like making out with her boyfriend at her own house with their parents around and then they played Rocky Horror Picture Show which I don't think I had any concept of what it was and my mind was blown forever so (laughs) it like turns on a switch if you're a certain age you're like oh yeah hey it's just more accessible now and I think Mm -hmm. you kind of had to like scramble like hard earn it or you know uh we're gonna start talking about Queen of Blood but you know this this whole podcast is about our obsession with movies. And when in my small town, I would find any way to get my hand on like an old VHS tape. Oh, yeah. Something weird that was playing on like a in between the stations channel. Um, things I would watch over and over and over again because we didn't have TV. So I'd like wear the tape out. Shall we get into the Queen of Blood? 
Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. We're going to start with a synopsis. 1966, an alien species contacts Earth, saying that they are journeying across the galaxy to make formal contact with humanity. Their interstellar starship crashes on Mars and an Earth ship is dispatched to attempt a rescue. A strange green-skinned woman is found alive aboard the shuttle's wreck. As they head back to Earth, the crew begins to die, drained of their blood. So let's get into it. I have a clip of the opening line because right off the bat, I loved this. The year 1990. The problem of traveling to the moon has been solved for many years. Which I didn't know that we had a problem. A moon problem. The problem with the moon has been solved. I can't. <laughs> it just got me really excited that this movie, which looks exactly like the year that it was filmed in 1966, was supposed to be set in 1990. Not a lot of progress as far as uh, hair, clothes, technology only. We've been focusing on that for a while. All right. Oh, great opening. So here we are at the Space Institute, which I think it's actually supposed to be on the moon, not an Earth like that synopsis said. But anyways. I was confused about that, and I definitely have, right right off the bat, was confused about them hanging out in an outdoor cafeteria type of Melrose Place, (laughs) high school, outdoor eating area. It really threw me because I did think that they were on the moon and I couldn't figure out if they thought the problem with the moon was solved because they got an atmosphere (laughs) and palm trees. Yes. (laughs) Very confused. Very confusing. There's a lot of details in the beginning of this movie that are not, eh, we could just gloss over them. So we're introduced to one of our female leads. Yeah. Miss Laura James, who is a very like Betty Draper-esque blonde, big full red lips, wiggy wig wiggy blonde wig in full mustard which i was like wow she is on trend for 2021 in that mustard outfit i would wear that in a heartbeat (laughs) yes i would wear that that giant football helmet uh blonde wig just (laughs) about the neighborhood for sure oh yeah this day and age every time you leave the house just pop on a wig like that (laughs) i'm ready they're showing us our main characters that we're going to know at the beginning of the movie so we have our, our kind of boyfriend, Laura James's boyfriend, who's another astronaut, who I later realized is the cop from Nightmare on Elm Street. Yes. This is like him in 1966, which he's so young. Yeah. The movie is set in 1990. So, I mean, the fact that they're putting so much stock in this idea that the world would rapidly improve in three decades <laughs> is... Uh, it always... Somehow it makes me depressed when I see that kind Aww. of thing because... I'm like, you didn't know. It wasn't going to get much better. <laughs> it wasn't going to. It was so optimistic. It was optimistic. They really put a lot of idealism in that 30 years. They were like, we're just going to be going into space immediately. Now that we figured it yeah. out, why wouldn't we? <laughs> we'll be hanging out up there. Uh, so, yeah, the uh, they're all hanging out, right? Um, and they're eating exobiological food. And they're talking about how they're going to be eating that in space. So that's like space food. And the only real indication that their clothing is any different than the 60s are the men wearing these quilted jackets. Yeah, quilting. Super futuristic. (laughs) Also, the color scheme was making me laugh because it was very banana with like the off-white and the like golden yellow color together. I I loved this little scene. One of the astronauts used the word, what's the scuttlebug? 
Like, what's the scuttlebug? When he came to sit down, and that really, that floored me. Just really cute. <laughs> Is that something you would say? If I was an astronaut, and moon travel was easy, and I had a quilted jacket, I'd for sure be eating my exobiological food and going, what's the scuttlebug? This is a this is a whole little realm, a whole mood, a whole thing, and I, I like it. I'd hang out here. Somebody asked me, "What's the scuttlebug?" I wouldn't know what to say back to them. <laughs> but uh, I need to work on that. <laughs> oh yeah. So also Dennis Hopper, young Dennis Hopper in this movie. Yeah, I didn't know he was in this, but when the opening credits were playing, which by the way, the opening credits are themselves worth. Complete tangents because they are gorgeous. Go into it. Go into Tangent it. Tangent alert. I got very, very excited about the titles that were painted based on John Klein's art. And they were specifically for this movie. Did you say that the paintings were based off of that guy's work or that he did them? He did them. And uh, he did a lot of other really cool surreal art in that time. The other tangent alert was uh, Curtis Harrington as the writer-director. Oh, you, yes. Yeah. I went to go look up the director just to, like, get his name and information and discovered that he was actually one of the forerunners of, quote, unquote, new queer cinema, which I'm not going to go into the whole film theory because that's a whole thing, but that's really cool. And he apparently directed experimental films and was a cohort of Kenneth Anger, who was like this really interesting occultist experimental filmmaker in the 50s and not only did curtis harrington dp on one of his films but he was also an actor in the inauguration of the pleasure dome which is crazy so i had to go look that up and that led me down a rabbit hole where i discovered that the reason that they were buddies is because they were both into thelema which is alistair crowley's occult society do what thou wilt. all of that people can look into that that's way too big of a topic for me to go into right now but he worked closely with Kenneth Anger and this actress who was also in Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome, Marjorie Cameron. And her life is fascinating. She was lovers of a man who was a rocket scientist who was engaged in magic rituals with L. Ron Hubbard just before the beginnings of Scientology. So if you want to Google somebody interesting and go down a real rabbit hole, look up Marjorie Cameron, who's not in Queen of Blood. I'm just telling you about her because that's what we do. We go on tangents. Yeah, I love a good tangent. Just a real Easter egg in this movie that Curtis Harrington was a forerunner of new queer cinema and an occultist. I love that era of Hollywood. Kenneth Anger wrote that book, right? Hollywood Babylon. And most of it is bullshit. But there are these little bits of occult weirdness interspersed into old Hollywood because actors are freaks. (laughs) (laughs) They're sex deviants. They're (laughs) Satan worshippers. And uh, that to me is part of the magic of old Hollywood. And this was such a fun detail to find out about. Yeah, fun detail. I I love connections like that. I love hearing about... People who were in these clubs together or just people who made movies together. People who are secretly related. I I like to call this form of nepotism um, undercover Coppola. (laughs) Because there are all these people who are related to each other who are all Coppolas, right? (laughs) Like Nicolas Cage is Sofia Coppola's Mm -hmm. cousin. Francis Ford Coppola's daughter and Jason Schwartzman is also their cousin and Nick, like Francis Ford Coppola's his uncle. Yeah. Um, but then that got me on this other tangent about like finding that that like Hollywood weird connection through actual blood relations. 
um, as its own sort of cult of nepotism. <laughs> Tracking down the cousins of Coppola. <laughs> so basically, we're saying to all you actors out there, if you don't make it, don't feel bad about yourself, because unless your cousin was a Coppola, then you you were never going to give it a chance anyways. You had a very slim chance to begin with, so don't worry about it. <laughs> Tangent alert! Oh, I was going to say, Harrington was a buddy of Maya Darren, who is this amazing experimental female filmmaker, who if you've ever taken a film class, you've probably seen some of her stuff. She's really cool. I have not heard of her. This is probably, like, criminal on my end. Well, I think you can watch her stuff probably on YouTube. They're short cool. films, and they're black and white, and they're just really pretty, surreal. Lots of layering of images. What's her name? Maya Darren. M-A-Y-A-D-E-R-E-N. Oh, wait. I have seen... Oh! Meshes of the Afternoon. I've watched that. It's cool yeah. as hell. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, yes, yeah, yes. That's like one of the ones that she's really famous for. All right. So moving on from this outdoor sort of Southern California astronauts out in Palm Tree having their nice lunch. So... Moving on from there, we we start to get this idea that we have been picking up signals from space. And everyone's very calm about it. Yeah. (laughs) As if this happens all the time. But they do make sure to mention that this has never happened before. So everyone's kind of calmly like, I'm going to, oh, I'm just recording these strange recordings. Do you have time for lunch? Sure. And then waltzes out to have lunch. The next thing you know, they have this giant sort of, announcer who's in some sort of red sky bubble and there are people in the this field so this open field listening also looking like they're in southern california listening to the sky bubble announcer very relaxed extremely chill not worried about unknown space visitors dropping an unannounced visit it's like this has happened before and yet it hasn't. And yeah. that was pretty wild to me. I think that's why I had to watch it like three times. I thought I was missing some context. <laughs> the message itself too was super chill. It was very much like, hey, so uh, we, our atmospheres are like good enough. We've never met you before. We've never encountered <laughs> you before, but like we can figure this out. Let's get together. That blew my mind. You no, know, I think this is the start of a uh, bad science alert, which is going to come up quite a bit. Um <laughs> I, I have a many bolded notes that say bad science alert, and I only just now realized this is kind of our first real uh, inclination that we're about to get a lot of bad science, is that the species coming to visit Earth is just assuming they'll be fine. The atmosphere is probably close enough, and we're not worried about it. We're coming. We're on our way. You know, Didi, I think this is a really good time to tackle this, like with all the misinformation being spread in the world, and let's just get right down to it. Let's talk about bad science. break it down (laughs) and one of the things bad science things that i noticed was orbs 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 yes yes that's what i wrote down whenever there were shots of space technology because it was all of these orb shaped giant objects with no definitive purpose but you know it's futuristic when it's shaped like an orb that leads us on another tangent because I was so confused whenever they would cut to this other planet and this other spaceship. It seemed so removed from what was happening in the Earth world. And the reason that that is, is because that is from a completely different movie. So this is really fascinating to me, the way that they used to make budget movies at this time. So Roger Corman 
found these two Russian movies. And we're not talking about, like, clips that were never used from these movies. We're talking about full Russian movies. And they just took all of the scenes of this other planet, of this alien planet, because it was already shot. You didn't have to spend money on building sets. And they just plugged them in. They wrote this movie, Queen of Blood, around these scenes. So these shots are from a movie, a Soviet film, called A Dream Come True. I'm not going to pronounce the Russian title because it would be absolutely pointless. I don't speak Russian. Corman hired Curtis Harrington to make two movies using these scenes. So none of these scenes have anything to do with Queen of Blood. They're just plugging them in and hoping that we will notice. Well, this is great because the timing, I didn't know that until you said it. And I made sure not to look this movie up before I watched it or look it up on Wikipedia. But after I watched it, I looked it up and I did see that they used parts of other movies, which makes a lot of sense. If you're watching it, there are parts of it that really don't feel connected when they do flashes to space Mm -hmm. and show flashes to this uh, alien world, which also isn't really clear. I didn't know what I was seeing. I was seeing a mix of these main characters that we're just quickly introduced to and then these orbs and things and these spooky sounds. And I thought, Oh wow. The the production quality is really good on this movie. And then they would flash back to the astronauts that were our main characters. And I was thinking that the, the production value seemed to not be as good. And it's like, (laughs) they bought this really great production value movie of these really sexy, you know, hands, going around an orb and people in these outfits that looked cool. I just, for the holidays, bought my partner a Roger Corman film series through the Hollywood Theater and Movie Madness. They did a course and he was really good at saying, I will buy this part of this movie or you can make this movie, but you have to include parts of it from this other movie to cut down on production costs. And the other thing he was really good at was, I've already got this movie planned. Uh Therefore, I need you to take these actors in the same crew and make a secondary film when they're not on this set so we can make two movies at once. It's so funny. I just love it. I feel like no one makes movies like that anymore. Just slapdash. Oh no. Gotta love it. You can't get away with that. I love that idea though of just being given footage and build a movie around it from an already existing shot. And I I also remember this one little line where Curtis Harrington, the director of this movie, was talking about how they only had six days to shoot Queen of Blood because Roger Corman had hired all these hippies to build the set and they were all stoned and they like weren't working. <laughs> they were just smoking pot. <laughs> six days. Oh, I've got things to say about the set when we get into it. <laughs> Yeah, because the rest of this movie is like an indoor outer space movie. The rest of it just takes place on this quote-unquote spaceship that's just a room with a bunch of like knobs glued on the wall and some really fun lights. Yes, we'll we'll get get there. there. So, okay, so to recap so far, we've talked about the opening credits (laughs) and the astronauts um, getting some sort of signal and then going to lunch instead of looking into it more. Mm -hmm. And then a sky announcer telling them that pe- that we're getting visitors from out of space and don't worry about it, and no one does. And then we go back to Basil Rathbone, who is sort of like the lead, I suppose, the lead scientist on the moon, or of all the astronauts. Yeah, he's in charge. Um, I don't know if we're... We're never really given a name of the agency that everyone is under. I, maybe we're left to assume it's NASA. It's a space institute. Space institute. <laughs> and then, so Basil Rathbone is giving this speech uh, from this stage, which is really cool. And we've been given a six-month prep time. And in my mind, I really thought this was what gave the plot more credibility. <laughs> if they had shown up right then, I would have just 
bowled over and fell out of the sofa and been, I can't deal with it. Six months? Okay. Nice. They're on their way. I love that you're, like, giving this movie credit for being realistic wherever you can find wherever it. Wherever I can find credibility. I don't know that we properly explain that Laura James, our, one of our female leads, is an astronaut. She's mm-hmm. a lady astronaut. Her partner, let's call him his name, John Saxon, the dad from Nightmare on Elm Street. He's very supportive. She gets to go on this mission before him, and he's like, cool, that's awesome. And I, as you were giving credit to this movie for being realistic, I was like, oh, isn't that nice? Which I, I hate that I'm, like, so just happy to be included. Like, oh, they weren't an asshole to this woman when she's she gets I to know. be an astronaut. I know, yes. He didn't pull any weird macho stuff about, I should be going instead of you first, or be safe up there, or who's going to protect you? He was, you know, waving and saying, hey, go go have a nice voyage. Go learn some things. Very uh, supportive. And not even, like, making a point of being supportive. It was just what was happening. Which, for 1966, even though this is a movie about the future, that surprised me. I have to make a note that I really hate when I'm watching something futuristic and then there's, like, some sexism in there. Because why? Why do I need to be subjected to sexism in the future? Haven't we outgrown that? Like, can I see a real fantasy of the future of people actually advancing? So it, yeah. it was nice. But she does end up being, like, one of the only women with a bunch of other white dudes. So, you know, it only goes so far. Let me have my sexism-free future. So, okay, they're up on the space. They're now on the moon. I, I, at some point, they're fully on the moon. <laughs> and that's what the whole outdoor cafeteria scene really still throws me for a loop because now they're on the moon. And yeah, I'll believe it when I really get confirmation. I love that someone gets a call and they're saying you have a call from Earth. Where else is this call coming from? Like that just, that also bowled me over. A lot of lines bowled me over. Apparently I'm not hard to impress. <laughs> okay. So at this point, they go out into space we have a lot of scenes of them talking about what to eat, um, just kind of settling in. And this is around the point in movies like this where I start asking, where are we going to see this queen of blood? We have a saying around our house when we're watching crappy movies and they, and uh, as they often do, low budget movies like to save their monsters for the very end of the movie to get their money's worth. Yes. This really became an issue when my partner and I were watching Chud. Where I kept saying, where is the chud? Show me the chud. And so this is the show me the chud moment. I'm starting to get antsy. It's been like 40 minutes. They're talking about sandwiches, space food again. And meanwhile, I hadn't looked this movie up ahead of time. The Queen of Blood, I thought it was going to turn into a horror movie or there was going to be... I, I didn't know what where we were going here. Yeah. So I was very in, like highly anticipating the What's going to happen next? You didn't even know this was a sci-fi movie. I did not. I did not know this was a sci-fi movie at all until I started watching it. And, you know, at this point, we're thinking, where's the where's the chud, right? <laughs> and instead, we get these scenes of Dennis Hopper on this, like... So you talked about the stoners making the set, right? So mm-hmm. Dennis Hopper's on this captain's log talking about maybe their first day in space or whatever. The way that Dennis Hopper's recording into it is, is like a reel-to-reel actual tape. Yeah. Right? Because in the future, they, I mean, they didn't know at this point we might be using really anything except for actual tape (laughs) to transmit or record things. So there's this massive reel-to-reel thing on the wall recording as Dennis Hopper's um, talking into it and talking about their mission so far. And all I could think of was Frank Booth with, like, the breathing mask (laughs) because it looks like that. 
They're just talking about what they're going to eat and stuff. So in the meanwhile, there's this box that's always like a really hazy, hard to see through plastic cover on this box. That's like bedtime, mealtime. And I'm thinking they just got into space and they already are, are being told when to eat. And then all of a sudden it's like, go to bed. Why is it like this? Why, why is their schedule so strictly <laughs> uh, enforced by this weird box yeah. that's telling them when to do things? They're really micromanaging these adult astronauts. <laughs> okay, so they're up, in, they're up there. And, and for some reason, and maybe you can remind me of this, we got John Saxon and his partner are back on the moon and they're being told they have to go up into space as well for some sort of in very important thing because the mission isn't going well. And yet I don't really remember what the plot device was there. I mean, I think they threw all this stuff in again to delay the chud. So <laughs> they, they flashed this like newspaper headline that there's like one of the astronauts is found dead, but it has like a picture of the people that we've already seen. So it was very confusing because I thought one of them came back dead. Yeah. It's a mess. Like all the editing in the middle of this movie. I don't know what it, is going on. I, I mean, if I went back and watched it again, I might be like, okay. So they land on this moon outside of Mars. They yeah. tell the folks on Mars that they're there. And then John Saxon and his partner see something out of the window. They never show it because we don't have the budget for that. But all <laughs> of a sudden they're in another spaceship that they've seen on this moon. Mm-hmm. So this this alien f- species that we've been waiting for she is sort of snuck onto the moon instead of onto the planet where they were supposed to meet up with the other scientists so everything so all of a sudden you're like oh what we've been deceived she's why are they here instead of there and we would have never known they were there if these other folks didn't come in and do some weird side b mission they see the silhouette of this like very babely shape, uh, which you told me was actually from the other movie too, which made me laugh, right? Mm-hmm. It's from the Russian film. Yes. 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 So we see this babely shape who then faints and they like rush to her. You know what? I, I didn't think about this before, but the fact that she like shows up and faints immediately. Yeah. Man. I know. Right away. Fainting. I feel like you couldn't be a woman in a movie back in the day without fainting from being overwhelmed by life. Yeah. Oh! So they carry her back to their spaceship and they're communicating with the crew on Mars. And somehow they do a coin flip because only two people can fit in the um, escape pod that will take them from the moon down to Mars. Are you all confused listening to this? Because guess what? You'll be confused watching it. (laughs) It's a real chicken and a fox conundrum. Really, really tricky stuff here. Uh, they're telling them, hey, we're going to take an escape pod. We can only bring two people, but we're definitely going to bring this woman that we found mm-hmm. up here because who is she? <laughs> and they do a coin toss and knowing one of them might get stuck on there until they can get rescued by people back on the moon. Um, so we, And we don't see who won the coin toss. And for some reason, this is another thing where I was like, this is good storytelling, just like I loved the six month <laughs> window. I loved the coin toss because then they're wandering around the surface of Mars with the swooning woman in their arms. And you don't know who won the coin toss. Was it John Saxton? Was it the other person? Is Lord Jane's boyfriend forever stuck on the moon of Mars? And that goes on for a long time. And for some reason, I liked this this plot point. When they show Laura James in the other ship, they show her from behind. So I thought that this was setting it up that these people had been on the planet for a while and they were on like this planet of killer women. And that wasn't actually Laura James Lee, the astronaut anymore. It was actually one of the killer women, but then they show up 
and it is John Saxon, it is her partner, and everything's fine, and we just kind of move on. <laughs> we just move on from there. Yeah. A lot of moving on in this. Okay, so this is our big moment. This is a big moment. Queen of Blood has arrived. The Queen of Blood has arrived. Here's our Chud. The Chud has arrived. <laughs> Here's the Chud. And she shows up. She is green skin, which yeah. makes her eyes look really red, which I thought was a pretty effective uh, makeup choice. And she has this sort of helmet that looks like almost like a deep sea diver. And on her head, inside of the helmet, is what to me looks like a little gold like floral swim cap. Yeah. It looked like a little swim cap and it looked like it was made of mylar strips that were like curled upward. Little curly wispies. So I was like just taking that as like her hair. I took it as her hair as well. So she's been unconscious and then she wakes up and this scene I thought was pretty amazing. First of all, I was so excited. She's finally here. We get to meet the Queen of Blood. She wakes up, but she doesn't speak. But it's clear that she communicates telepathically. And her and Dennis Hopper have this amazing, like, sustained eye contact. And she just has this whimsical little smirk as she's clearly communicating to him with her eyes. She is flirting heavily with Dennis Hopper. My breakdown of this when I wrote my notes was intense and horny. (laughs) And boys, boys, boys. Boys, boys, boys. Because it's just horny staring contest i had to put a clip of this online it made me laugh so hard as the doctor is standing here staring at her saxon just sort of like into frame (laughs) yes (laughs) (laughs) he does he looks like he just rolled in on some like little wheels into the frame (laughs) just ready it's amazing Yeah, so they're all just standing around staring at each other, and it's very uh, thirsty. Yeah, it's very And then Laura James kind of comes in and locks eyes with the Martian woman, and uh, she does not like that. Yes, she very much doesn't like Laura Jane, and I don't recall what the comment was, but at some point there was a sexist comment by one of the other astronauts, because... They said something like, looks like she doesn't like members of her own sex or something like that. I don't know what it was, but it bothered me because I thought, you don't even know what this alien creature is and you're already making sexist remarks. That is bad science right there. You are drawing conclusions too quickly, sir. Oh, um, I have another bad science alert from this very moment. The older Dennis Hopper clone astronaut says, uh, starts to make assumptions, wild assumptions immediately about the vampire queen about the queen of blood and it only escalates from here the older astronaut says her screen is green so maybe she's like a plant yeah and she absorbs (laughs) nutrients through her skin like chlorophyll you have no there's no basis for this assumption a fatal flaw too because then he's like assuming she's like a passive plant yes yes so they basically just kind of kidnap her. They don't, like, ask her if it's cool that they take her along or, like, no. how to get her back to her people. They just sort of, like, well, we need to bring her back. He kept referring to her as precious, which I kind of enjoyed because I liked that she was being respected, <laughs> even though she was being disrespected at the same time. <laughs> and this is where I have another costume alert because there's a scene where she puts her hand on someone and you can see her hands. And I was expecting, like, full, like, red claws because of the era that we're in. But instead, she has these 
clear rubber gloves on over her green skin, but it reads as like a thick, gooey skin layer. So I thought that was kind of that cool was really cool. I liked that costumey bit. I'm gonna wear clear vinyl gloves from now on just to give my hands like a creepy effect and really keep people six feet and then some <laughs> away from me. Something ain't right. I like it. So she takes the helmet off, right? And oh, yes. the next scene is that Dennis Hopper is running a series of experiments on her, which are very unscientific. She takes off her helmet and at some point, I guess, we don't ever see the reveal of this, but she has her own hair and it's not the Mylar wig. I called it a Whoville, <laughs> like a yeah. sort of like little poof at the top. And um, Dennis Hopper is drinking water out of this like bottle with a little curvy straw and like squeezing the bottle and having the water go in his mouth and then just putting it in her mouth to see if she'll drink it yeah. and going back and forth. Like he's trying to teach her how to drink yeah. water, but they're just sharing this straw. You don't know what this species is, but you're sharing. You know, do you feel straws. like you're even more sensitive to this stuff now because of COVID? Like whenever I see people sharing things in movies, sharing anymore, drinks, sharing me- uh, like a spoon. Yeah. I don't, I'm like, get out of here. He doesn't know what sort of diseases he's giving to this alien life form. Come on. Exactly. Very unscientific. Dennis Hopper. Then he tries to break off this like big chunk of like a brick of looking like cookie and she doesn't want it. And he thought, oh, she doesn't like to eat this. Why does she like to eat? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, she has this like big egg shaped wig, which I thought was amazing. Instead of having bangs in the front on your forehead, like you know, yeah. people do. It had bangs kind of down around the side of her head and around the back yes. of her head. Back bangs. Yeah, she had a ring. And this little little cupid twist on top. I think we both clocked this. I immediately thought of Mars Attacks. Lisa yes. Marie's character. I even looked up to see if the costume designer listed Queen of Blood as an influence, which she didn't, but clearly... Yeah. You must have seen Queen of Blood. You gotta look it up. The wig. So similar. Exactly. It really, really reminded me of Mars Attacks. Very babely, sexy alien with the like very tall blonde wig. All right, so we're moving along. We've we've got our chud. Um, <laughs> bad science is happening left and right, um, and a pretty big thing happens. Yeah, a very big thing. Our happens. first death. Dennis Hopper goes our down, cut down in the prime of life. Do do do. They take out our young Dennis Hopper. Everyone's gone to bed, I guess. Maybe the sign blinked bedtime and everyone followed <laughs> the rules. Um, but Dennis Hopper's awake and encounters our, our, our green alien babe and has this another sexy stare-off contest. Mm-hmm. And she comes up and she starts going for it. And it looks like they're making out. Yeah. But you're seeing it from the back of her head. And the next thing you know, Dennis Hopper's on the ground with a wound and he's dead. Dead. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that they had her drain his blood from his wrist instead of yeah. his neck. Because so it she looked like they were making blood. out or something. Didn't it look like they were going to kiss? It did. And then the wound was on his hand. Yeah, it makes you wonder what else went on before yeah. she made it down to the wrist. Maybe he's I got mean, bites all over. Who knows? So she's like, they come and discover the body and then they, they see her and she's asleep. And a huge bad science alert. They realize what she's done. They realize that what she that she killed him and she drank his blood, and he says, "Well, she has the telltale blood in the yeah. corners of her mouth, you the know, vanity, like the vampire movies, the vanity blood, where it's like a very neat little drip. It makes you look cute." <laughs> uh, he says she's sleeping off her meal. Oh yes, I will put this clip in. She's a monster. 
notice how deep and heavy your breathing is. She's gorged herself with fresh blood. And now she's digesting like a boa constrictor to swallow a whole animal. She may remain like this for days. It's fascinating. Fascinating. It's horrible. This for me is what I'm going to call the good for her moment. Because <laughs> I think it was you yeah. that shared this meme with me on Instagram yeah. that was saying, I like to call the movies I am attracted to good for her movies. Mm-hmm. And it was clips from like The Love Witch. Yeah. I think it was like Witches, Carrie. Yeah. You know, women just living their truth. Getting some revenge. So her drinking his blood and just taking a little nap. We'll call that her good for her moment. Good for her. Just a little blood nap. I've had this experience. Me and a friend bonded over this that after eating an entire container of chips and salsa you have to take a little salt nap sometimes so yeah Mm -hmm. i can relate to this little blood nap moment she's having yes (laughs) all right so she's sleeping it off um we got some more bad science they start to allude to the fact that they'll have to keep her satiated so they better find some of that plasma lying around in the ship if she needs blood we'll give her some of the plasma we have lying around which i was like looking all around my house dramatically (laughs) like Really plan it up. Why is there plasma on this ship? Should I have plasma? Why is there plasma laying around? Should I be keeping plasma? Should I keep keeping plasma around? Oh, okay. Well, the doctor is, like, her biggest fan. I was saying to you before that this doctor, for me, is given all the red flags of, like, codependency. <laughs> he is just immediately willing to give up their blood reserve to this alien. He keeps referring to her as precious. Yes. He's just like, whatever we need to do. Oh, and he calls her an intellectual insect. Mm-hmm. Which I love that term. And uh, <laughs> I strive to be an intellectual insect one day. He is very, very, very enthusiastic about our queen here. Um, and no hesitation about bringing, like, they just discovered this alien vampiric life form. Yeah. Feeds on human blood, clearly. No hesitation about taking her back to Earth, which is essentially like a buffet for her. Yes. Like, not concerned about it at all. Oh, yes, and we should mention they are on their way back to Earth. When they found her, they were like, wrap it up! We're done here. We're calling it good. Uh, This is a tangent alert for me. We see them decide to get rid of Dennis Hopper's body. And the communication with the people back on Earth is that they should dump it out in space <laughs> instead of bringing it back to Earth. And I don't know why any of this is in the movie because I'm like, would they just do that with bodies? They're talking about whether or not to bring it back or not. I mean, they probably could bring it back. But the thing that really killed me is that the, they are told to dump the body out into space. And the next scene is them carrying this like blue tarped wrapped body. It's coiled up with rope, like hemp rope. Uh-huh. And I could not believe that they just have blue tarp and, and hemp rope on this space, on this like futuristic spaceship. And why do they have this on shit? Why do they have it on here? Why the idea of casting a body off into space, like you would bury someone at sea. It makes no sense to me there. It's like that body's going to sit frozen and for the rest of time floating in space, yep. floating in a blue tarp. <laughs> We're just waiting to get like, maybe it'll float forever. Maybe it'll get absorbed into a star or the atmosphere of a planet and get burned up. Maybe someone will accidentally like hit it in their windshield. 
<laughs> in a thousand years on a different spaceship. But I just can't. It seems really irresponsible to me. You're casting bodies into space that yeah. might just float and become what? I mean, yeah. I, could, I just couldn't believe. Well, I was laughing you brought up the tarp and the rope because I've been watching a lot of Alone lately, which is like a survival show where one of the few things they're allowed to bring is some rope and a tarp. Uh-huh. So same sort of survival principles when you go to the moon. Rope, tarp, build a shelter, <laughs> you're good to go. We should look this up, though, because there might be bodies floating around in space. I think I take for granted that there are, but I think that's just based on movies that I've seen. There, I feel like they're constantly shooting stuff out into space. I do know there is a lot of just, like, random space garbage floating around out there. Yes. And probably, sadly, a couple monkeys and dogs. Ah, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, what? it's not going to decompose. I mean, it might shatter. Could, uh, conceivably, if it's cold in the vacuum of space, a body might shatter if it hits something. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Yeah. Or is that just another kind of thing in my brain from a movie? Like... Like no, I think they could shatter gas. because, you know, why I think this is because there is a type of green post-mortem body processing where they freeze-dry your body and then shatter it with a hammer so it composts. Whoa. So I imagine if you were frozen in space, which is the most frozen you could possibly get, that you probably can be shattered. This is easily. our bad science alert on us because... <laughs> <laughs> the tables have turned. <laughs> wild, wild guessing. But basically, they're like, we're going back to Earth, but we don't eh, we don't need to bring Dennis Hopper along. I don't need a dead body bumming me out. His family doesn't need to see his body. <laughs> so we're moving on from Dennis Hopper. He never existed. He would have, I think they say he would have wanted it this way, <laughs> like casting his body into space or something <laughs> like that. We go back to them going back to bed again. And I thought, how like, how often do they sleep on this ship? They sleep all the time. Yeah. This movie is a lot of bedtime. A lot of bedtime notifications on the screen. (laughs) Um, So what happens next? Oh, she comes for the doctor. This made me laugh because they're on this spaceship that appears to be two rooms, but people are constantly losing track of each other. And there's no attempt to secure this alien species at all, even after they've discovered that she's fed off of Dennis Hopper. She's not strapped to a chair Oh, wait, I lied. She is strapped down this time, but she burns her way out of her restraints with her eyeballs. Yes, and but she wasn't tied down the first time. No. But also the fact that like people are just so unaware of what's happening, like maybe five feet away from them in this space shuttle, <laughs> that she has time to drain the blood of a person. You're right, though. There's very lax security. No one really is concerned until it's already too late. Older astronaut, I call him Dennis Hopper's clone is the next to be fed on. And I'm honestly, I bet he was thrilled. He was in (laughs) love with this alien. He was probably thinking, if I gotta go, this is how I want to go. This is what he would have wanted. This is it for me. This is the tops. (laughs) The tops! (laughs) Codependent to the end. The next scene is she attempts to kill John Saxon. The whole movie, men have been like, not worried about this alien, even though she's killing people. And they keep telling Laura James to, like, stay behind while they go check it out. But she's clearly killing the men. So it's a bad plan to keep leaving her behind. It's a bad plan. And she ends up being the person who saves them because she gets into kind of like a light cat fight, which we've talked about having a cat fight rating scale on our movies of, like, how petty the women are with each other. (laughs) So we've got a mild cat fight, not even a slap fight in this movie. She barely touches the Queen of Blood 
and scratches her with her nails, like you do. And the Queen of Blood screams, and it made me laugh because it's the most dramatic thing. She just barely steps off camera, but it sounds as if her scream is going down into a canyon. (laughs) What's that called? (laughs) Isn't there a sound effect called a Wilhelm scream? Do you know what I'm talking about? No, we can find out. Look it up, and then, yeah, (laughs) we might, like, even put it in, because I think people will recognize it. It, To me, this was, like, some version of the Wilhelm scream. (laughs) You've heard it in, like, every movie. So she runs off, she's been scratched, and they find her, seconds later, apparently completely dead. She has somehow maybe had about two tablespoons of blood circulating in her system, and it all came out when she was scratched. (laughs) And so we have this moment of her laying on this couch looking like Suzanne Barsht in this, like, unitard. And they immediately come to the conclusion. She is a hemophiliac. And she must have some royalty in her blood. Yeah. Because she bled out so fast. And I thought, what the hell? Like, okay, on on Earth, that might have been a thing in some, like, in some royal families, like, in Eastern Europe, right? Yeah. We're taking that concept and applying it to a completely different alien race. She must have been a hemophiliac. Maybe she had some royalty in her blood. And they're also mixing in like a queen bee thing. Like she's the queen of this hive and she has to go out. She's fragile. So the worker aliens are like taking care of her. It's like, where have they been? How did the species evolve? And how did this, how did she live on this planet? And how did she crash in this plane, uh, this plane that crash landed on? The moon of Mars, and she didn't get a scratch on her the whole time. Yeah. Questions. Questions. Lots of questions. And I also just feel like it must be unfair to people with hemophilia that people assume that they're uh, products of incest all the time. Right. Because I don't think that's the only reason that you can be hemophiliac. I don't think that that is the only reason. It just (laughs) happens to be that they saw it in this one family line because they had this recessive gene being brought in over and over and over again. But we can talk more about that at length in another... No, I'm just joking. (laughs) (laughs) Tune in for more next week when we really break down recessive genes. We get into hemophilia. (laughs) Okay, so we wrap up very quickly from here. Like, you know, we spend a significant amount of time looking for the alien and then the alien feasting on people in a lot of sexy, silent, you know, staring contests. Mm. Boom, we're going back home. John Saxon didn't get killed because Laura Jane you know, defended his life with her scratch. Um, But they are going to bring back the body. They land on Earth and then kind of twist ending, I guess. Oh, well, it turns out like a frog or something that this queen of blood has been laying eggs somehow in her one piece jumpsuit. Maybe there's a little flap, a little zipper or something. She's been laying eggs all over the ship. And this is when I immediately became concerned with you, Didi, because Didi has a very specific phobia that I thought may have been triggered by the scenes of these eggs, and I felt so bad for subjecting you to this. They were a little bit gross, but not in the way that made me feel like I was going to throw up. <laughs> but can you, can you, do you remember the name of your phobia? For I don't even like to look it up, but it's um, because things will pop up. You know what I mean? It's called like tricto. I didn't know there was a word for it. I didn't know that it was a phobia for a long time until maybe like five years ago. I realized there was a name for it, but I'm very disgusted by um, 
like to the point where my throat is getting kind of tight just thinking about it. But like, I'm very disgusted by things being crammed into other things like, um, barnacles on a rock kind of is the best thing I can think of, even though that's not the thing that bothers me the most. So it's, it's called trypophobia and it's an aversion to sight of irregular patterns or clusters of small holes or bugs. Kind of makes me feel sick. Yeah. (laughs) DD just had to take a deep swallow. (laughs) I didn't know it was a thing. I didn't know it was a thing for so long. And when I found out other people were grossed out by it and then there was a term for it, there's got to be people like who have things that they just thought was on them always. And then one day found out other people had them. I'm sure, you know, we're humans. We're not as unique as we like to think we are um, or just conceive that we are. And so then all of a sudden you look around and you're like, other people like literally can't like function as in sleep at night because they're dreaming of like little things being, Oh, I don't even, Oh, I'm mindly getting itchy because I saw a video on accident of these, like, I'm not I saw this like video of like uh, a, a rescued animal who's and I didn't mean to see it. I was oh following my. an Instagram page for rescued dogs and they showed it without a warning and I had to unfollow them. And I'm sure wow. other people will find this disgusting, but I couldn't sleep. I still sometimes I go to try to fall asleep and I sit there and I visualize it. And then I try to visualize myself cleaning out to fix it. So wow. that I can, like, get some rest. I mean, that's a traumatic <laughs> image. That's I think everybody would have a problem with that one. Now I know about that, and now I'm going to think about it. I know, I'm Beware. sorry. I almost stopped myself several times, and we can edit that out, because I don't think... <laughs> no one, you know what? We should edit that out. We'll, we'll go, bee, and then say, we're not going to say what Didi said, because that's going to ruin someone's day. It ruined my day <laughs> yeah. when I saw it. I don't want to ruin anyone's That's day. how they get you with those animal rescue videos is they show you something so horrific that you have to watch it all the way through for them to fix it. There was it. this other video. Someone uh, used to try to trick me with showing me this video without showing me what it was going to be every once in a while. And I stopped being this person's friend. But it's this video of all these little um, tadpoles hatching out of the mom frog's back. Ugh. They would go, oh, hey, look at this thing. And then show it to me without telling me what it was. I was like, I don't like you. It's not funny to gross me out like that. I have to say frogs and their whole sort of mating situation. I think a lot of people probably find that unsettling. It's unsettling. Yes. And this was pretty frog-like. This was very much like frog eggs that she had going on in the ship. The closing scene of the movie is like a baking tray, like a cookie tray with like red balls, eggs in green jello, which they're just sort of jiggling the tray and Basil Rathbone is looking down on it like it's his proudest moment. (laughs) I baked you all of these eggs. So they're back on Earth. Basil Rathbone is so thrilled. He is so excited about this discovery. He doesn't care that the alien's dead. He They start opening little panels in the ship and realizing it's crammed full of eggs. <laughs> Who knows how she got the time for it, but I'm having this visual of the queen at night when everyone's like sleeping all the time, just like like birthing <laughs> eggs and shoving them into crevices. Yeah. And then... um. You know, and then, yeah, they show this, like, I'm going to have this be my next potluck dish. Just a giant tray of undulating jello mold yeah. eggs. You can tell that someone's very slightly moving it with their own hands. <laughs> but they're trying, they're just trying to make it look like it's moving on its own. It's like, whoa, 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 And that is the climactic, horrific last shot that we end this movie on. Yep. That's our end credit. And they, it kind of looked like they gave a lot of thought and effort to that last shot because it lingered for a really long time. As if there'd be a sequel where the eggs all sprouted. Okay, so tangent. 
There was a sequel made to this movie starring the woman who is in this movie as the Queen of Blood, and it's called, I believe, Sky Boy or Space Boy. I think it's Space Boy, and you can't find it anywhere. I think it was shot on 16mm. I do have, since we've wrapped the movie, a couple little tangent notes here. Can we just talk about the best lines? Because for me, that came at the end of the movie. Okay, yeah. Tell me your favorite lines. You were saying about being surprised about the quality of storytelling and, and weird moments all of a sudden after we've been watching this whole trash movie saxon and laura james are about to leave the ship first of all i have to go back a second and make a note that the group of scientists that has come onto the ship to take all these eggs doesn't have any kind of protective gear of any kind on yeah. no hazmat suits no, no gloves no, nothing masks covering their face nothing no one's concerned so they basically are like look we got this get out of here and John Saxon is like, well, I I tried to warn him. And she's like, well, what can you do? And so he turns to her as they're about to leave the ship and he says, Come on, let's touch Earth and feel sunshine on our faces again. Which I thought was just like such a, a sort of deep moment. Like, of course, if you are an astronaut and you've been trapped in this like bubble in space for weeks at a time, yeah, you want to feel your feet on the ground and feel sunshine on your face, but I just wasn't expecting that. And they don't care that there's eggs. They saw it. They saw the eggs and they were like, not my problem. Out of their minds. Not my problem. I'm done. Mission's over. Not worried about Earth being taken over by <laughs> vampiric uh, aliens at all. Yeah, I, I like that. That was really a sweet little ending. And I like them as like a couple. They're cute. So it's like, they're going to go have fun. Maybe they won't have to think about the eggs for a little bit until they inevitably take over the planet. Um, (laughs) But eventually it will happen. I have to give credit to Curtis Harrington, our queer filmmaker, for treating his female leads with some respect. Having lines like that in this film. (laughs) He commented in one of the things I read about him that Roger Corman didn't want the woman who played the Queen of Blood, Florence Marley, to play her because she was an older woman. And he says, quote, I'm sure he had some bimbo in mind, so I fought for Marley because she had the required exotic quality that would work in the role. And we both kind of went on a little tangent. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's one of my big takeaways from this movie, besides the men's quilted jacket uniforms and the general future tech that I've already talked about. I think my biggest and most favorite takeaway from this whole thing was... Florence Marley, the actress. And in the end credits, they don't give her a character name. They just say Florence Marley as question mark, which was awesome. I thought like I I laughed at that part. I thought that was cool. Yeah, she had a great face. She had these really strong cheekbones. Yeah. And I loved her sort of like little knowing smirk when she was eye fucking everybody. I definitely paused the movie to like look her up and I found a couple things on my deep dive. Um, one was that she was accidentally blacklisted back in the day for being a communist because her name was similar to someone else who was blacklisted, who was also from Eastern Europe. Her name was Florence Marley. There was a singer named Anna Marley. And because they were both Eastern European and had similar names, people thought that she was the other person. And by default, she ended up getting treated really shittily in Hollywood In fact, like, had people snub her at parties and things like that because they thought she was someone else. That was one of the details on the Wikipedia page. I don't know why I'm laughing at that. It had no other explanation. They just had this line on her Wikipedia page that said, At a dinner, director Fritz Lang bit Marley's hand. 
So I don't know if that's because he thought she was a communist or like maybe he was flirting inappropriately or no explanation. I read, so she was 47 when she made this movie. That's awesome. And then she died like 10 years later from a heart attack, which is pretty young. I mean, who knows genetics if it, but I don't know. I thought that was kind of wild. She had kind of a wild life. She was born in the Czech Republic, or I guess Czechoslovakia at the time. And had to move to Argentina during World War II because her husband was Jewish. So she did a lot of acting in Argentina before they came to the U.S. Where she was in a movie with Humphrey Bogart, I think, was her big claim to fame. And she briefly was married to a count. <laughs> I I hope that my bio, at like when someone's reading my Wikipedia page, that I have been bitten in the hand by a famous director... And there's no other indication of what happened and that I was once briefly married to a count. I really hope (laughs) that those are little snippets that don't really expand to further information. (laughs) That's a good life goal, just to have mysterious details about yourself on your Wikipedia page after you're gone. Really fun, mysterious snippets. This is a little men of the internet tangent. I like to see what uh, stupid things men on the internet have to say about these movies. And... On this occasion, I found photos of her as I was Googling on a Blu-ray forum, which apparently is a thing, called Actresses Who Looked Good in Their Heyday. Because you are not safe from being judged for your physical appearance, even decades after your death. (laughs) (laughs) So, way to go, Florence Marley. Somebody would have fucked you. When on the young. Blu-ray forum, they have approved you <laughs> as being Blu-ray hot forums. in your heyday. Wow. <laughs> Queen of Blood. There it is. Queen of Thanks Blood. Oh, wait. Oh, one more uh, thing about this movie. Curtis Harrington, our director, who went on to direct a lot of things for TV, is quoted as saying that he felt Ridley Scott's Alien in 1979 must have received some inspiration from his feature... Ridley's film is like a greatly enhanced, expensive, and elaborate version of Queen of Blood. Wow. I'm I'm happy that um, Curtis Harrington has such high self-esteem because <laughs> this is a huge stretch to yeah. say that this movie inspired Alien. What, yeah. what, li- Aliens in Space is, is a whole genre of films that has been done so many times that how could one specifically be taken from the other? It's like uh-huh. movies that have um, some sort of threat in the water. You know, people will like to say that they're all like based on Jaws. Mm-hmm. But that theme has been around for a long time. Right. Creature of the Black Lagoon thing. You know, you can't say that like every Danger in the Water movie. I'm just only having this argument because I just watched a Roger Corman. One of the classes was Piranha, and, which he didn't direct but uh-huh. he produced and people were trying to shut it down when it came out because it came out a year after jaws and oh. it's piranhas yeah your your alien vampire queen inspired alien <laughs> good job totally basically <laughs> the same movie just more expensive but you know what he is a queer filmmaking pioneer so in this case i'm gonna give you it know, to him i'm gonna give him that pat give on it the to back. him you know what they did take your idea, Curtis. That's right. And I'm glad that they were inspired by your incredible movie. Yeah, and if you want to hear more about how he invented the movie Aliens, uh, you can read his book, Nice Guys Don't Work in Hollywood, which I might actually pick up because it sounds... You know what? He sounds pretty interesting. He's also buried at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, so I've been near his grave and didn't, didn't notice it. Next time I'll have to leave him a rose. 
That's one place I've never been. The Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Oh, it's fun. I wanted to go. I had to cancel a trip there. Actually, Didi, this is sort of um, appropriate to your name. The thing that I remember most about the Hollywood Forever Cemetery is that Didi Ramone is buried there and Johnny Ramone. But you know there are two different personalities, right? So Johnny was like a fictional person in the band The Ramones and Didi. We, we love Didi, obviously. Mm-hmm. So Didi's tombstone is just a normal tombstone. I think there might be like, you know, a nice line about him on there. It's nothing ostentatious. Johnny Ramone's <laughs> tombstone is a full-on bronze sculpture of him playing guitar. On all four sides of the bass are all these like gushing quotes from other famous people about how great Johnny Ramone <laughs> was. I'm like currently pulling up images. <laughs> it's amazing. Talking oh about God. leaving a legacy after wow. your death. Incredible. What is that? Oh, I thought he was standing on an amp like as the bass, <laughs> but it's just a big granite. I'm blown away. <laughs> oh, yeah. And Dee Dee Ramones is like this little simple. Oh, but it's covered in lipsticks, like little lipstick kisses. Oh, that's so cute. That's like um, Oscar Wilde's grave. I went to that cemetery yeah. in france where he's buried and it's just completely covered with kiss marks it's really sweet i kissed i kissed it did you i, th- I was one of the kissers i think i did wouldn't too. do it in co- post-covid <laughs> never gonna happen wouldn't kiss a tombstone 2021 back in 2002 when i was an optimistic 18 year old <sighs> i just definitely dated myself very specifically <laughs> Uh, because I gave dates. Um, I, I definitely kissed it. I had a book. I thought, I'm going to see Oscar Wilde. I'm kissing that thing. Oh, yeah. As, I did, too. I did, too. Wait, what year were you there? Mm-hmm. 2002. I was there yeah. probably 99, I think. So you might have been kissing cool. where I was kissing. What? Whoa. Oh, my God. I kissed your kiss. <laughs> I'm telling my imaginary grandkids that I'll never have that I kissed your kiss. Ugh. Can we just adopt some grandkids so we can tell them stories? Alright, so now that we've talked about Queen of Blood, would you recommend that people watch this? What what was worth watching about this movie? I would recommend that people watch it because it's fun. The costumes alone and just the the time capsule of a movie that it is with the retro futurism is really fun. Those might be some of my favorite movies to watch. Movies that are supposed to look futuristic but are just completely existing in the decade they were made. I would recommend watching it. I think it's fun and silly. The only thing I suppose that I didn't like about it, if we're going to that point yet. Sure. Would only be that there are moments of unnecessary sexism or assumptions about the alien being a woman and being a certain way. It was made in 1966. I mean, stuff like that is in movies now. <laughs> it kind of took me out of the moment a little bit just because I was thought, oh my God, that's so stupid. But then again, like the science was bad and a lot of the reasoning was very silly. Um, so that's kind of how I felt about it. I think visually... It was certainly entertaining. Now knowing the cult type connections of the people who sort of created it, it makes a lot more sense and it, it's just fun and campy. It's kind of a time I capsule. I think I yeah. would recommend this as a movie to have on if you're like me and you like to do other things while you're watching movies. This is a good like have on in the background while you're drawing or painting or sewing or something like that. Look up every once in a while, get some fun visuals, have a laugh. 
yeah, that's how I recommend it. Or maybe some legal cannabis would help the situation. <laughs> it did for me. I'm just going to say that. I live in Oregon, so don't, don't come for me. <laughs> now that we've covered Queen of Blood... We should close out by saying some other sort of media that we're obsessing about right now. I, I'll go ahead and go. Mine's not that exciting. I drudged through rewatching the 1994 miniseries The Stand. Oh my god, yeah. My god. I watched it when I was a kid, when it came out, and I wanted to rewatch it. And it's on YouTube, it's free. I've never it's seen six it. six hours long. Wow. So I watched it in chunks. And... Um, by the time it was wrapping up, the last 30 minutes felt like an eternity. It felt like I was in purgatory. So I have to cleanse my palate with some something different tonight. By the time it was over, my partner had slept through it and kept opening his eyes. And I was like, it's still happening. Uh-huh. Spoiler alert, everybody, for The Stand, which came out decades ago. There were parts of it I really liked, though. Well, you haven't watched it, but you read it, right? So the de- sort of devil character, the demon... In the miniseries, there's some pretty good use of, like, scare tactics, like, flashing over to him. where He's got, like, goat pupil eyes. They use his character pretty well. He's also just wearing, like, a full three-piece Canadian tuxedo the whole time. Same color of denim. with So a tucked-in denim shirt with a denim jacket and denim jeans, and it's all the exact color of denim. <laughs> and then he's got this, like, long blonde mullet. Wow. And he's very, like, cocksure of himself with these cowboy boots on and swagging around and it sounds like my partner the way you describe him physically (laughs) so i might have to watch it just for that (laughs) you'll have to look him up you'll have to watch some scenes some some clips that's what i've got going on my most uh recent obsession which i texted you about this yesterday is that i found this gallery i think they're in the midwest somewhere called deadly prey where they actually sell original paintings and prints of Ghanaian film posters. Essentially, there's all these amazing hand-painted movie posters, so you can look up. There's ones for Pet Cemetery, Repo Man. Um, there's a lot of beheading in the posters that wasn't in the movies, and a lot of monsters, like, sort of interpretation of what the story is. I don't know if they, you know, were given a synopsis of what to paint, but had never seen the movies. Yeah. So a really amazing example is the poster for Splash, which I think is the one I sent to you. Did you see that one? Yes, I love it. Splash is a movie with Daryl Hannah and Tom Hanks where she's a mermaid. But on this poster, there's a mermaid. I think she might have some spiky teeth and she is wrapped up with maybe like an alligator and a cobra. None of which was in (laughs) the film, but I want to see that version really bad. I would like to see that version of Splash. Yes. Oh my god. (laughs) Speaking of taking movies that already exist and making other movies, go check out Deadly Prey Gallery. They have, I think, an Instagram page also. And according to their website, all the profits from this artwork being sold goes directly to the artist. So that is awesome. That was our episode. Thank you for joining us. VOTV is created by Darcy and Dee Dee and features original music by Grace Peters. If you want to share your cinema obsessions, find us on Patreon at Vamps on the Verge to weigh in on what you want us to watch, vote up your favorites, and find out what we're watching ahead of time so you can watch along. You can also follow us at Vamps on the Verge on Instagram, where we'll be posting all of our favorite movie stills, memes, and more. 